you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, I was looking forward to studying this book, but after I'm diving into it, I'm loving it even more. Uh, it's just, it's full of great gems. And this little passage today, these only, what, 10, 9 verses that we're going to look at are so deep. <laughs> so get ready. Uh, we're looking only at verses 3 through 11. It's a bit of the thanksgiving of the letter. He's opened it up in verses 1 and 2, and then he moves. Normally, in ancient letter writing, epistolary literature, there would be this whole thanksgiving. First uh, Corinthians is one of those, where he goes on and on and on. It's kind of like, here's the platitudes before I take the two-by-four and hit you upside the head, right? <laughs> Peter doesn't do that in Second Peter. Why? He's on his deathbed, remember? He, he knows that he's about to be executed for the cause of Christ. He doesn't have any time to waste. So verses 3 through 11 really establish what he wants to accomplish through the whole book. And, and so it's vital. I'm glad you're here this morning because it's vital to our study. Uh, remember, we're stating who's our author. He tells us, but who's our author? Peter. Simon Peter, the guy that has that foot and mouth disease, right? Uh, time and time again, who is a bit brazen and rough around the edges has been smoothed down over time and first peter we saw was epistle of grace he's a guy who's understanding more and more what it means to to live out the forgiveness that's been get granted to him by christ so uh and our audience are a group of predominantly gentile christians who are scattered abroad i argued in modern turkey and the danger that this letter is addressing is that heretics, false teachers, they're not knocking on the door, they're in the camp. First Peter, they're outside. Second Peter, they're standing on the threshold. And in Jude, they're sitting at the table. And that's where we're moving as we go along. And, and so I want you to see verse 2. This is what we looked at last week, but it's key to the, what we're looking at today. Peter delivers a prayer. He says, may grace and peace be lavished on you. Remember this? As you grow in the knowledge, or the rich knowledge of God. We, we talked about that. Now he's going to give you the basis for the prayer in verses 3 and forward. He's going to start off by giving us uh, kind of really the, the foundation for spiritual maturity, the appeal to it, and then what is the goal of it. And that's what we're going to see here. Remember, he's trying to shore up his audience in the wake of heretical teaching. And so knowledge is going to become the forefront. In fact, this next section, he's going to start with knowledge. He peppers it in the middle of it, and he's going to end with it in verse 11. So watch this. He says, I can pray this because, what is he again praying? Grace and peace be lavished on you. And his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness. Literally, the term means good worship. Through the rich knowledge, there it is again. Uh, remember, um, the false teachers have a whole under, other understanding of theology. So he's saying, listen, don't lose sight of what you know in the wake of these false teachers. Of the one who called us, that is your election, by his own glory and excellence. Through these, I think that's his glory and excellence, things he has bestowed. You're saying that word sounds familiar. Yep. Three times this is being highlighted. He's lavished. He's given. He's bestowed to us his precious and most magnificent promises so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. Uh, some of you may have in your English versions, lust. It's actually the word that's being highlighted here. That's going to be the problem with the false teachers. Remember, uh, we talked about this a little bit. They're going to applaud lust. <laughs> They've been liberated. They're the true Christians, you know. They walk in grace. You, you can hear all the lines, can't you? Because uh, we're familiar, unfortunately, with some of those. For this very reason, he says, make every effort to add to your faith excellence, excellence, knowledge, knowledge, self-control. He goes through this eight virtue laundry list and he ends with unselfish love. For if these things are really yours, and we assume they are, and are in continually increasing, they will keep you from the coming ineffective and unproductive in your pursuit of knowing, there it is, our Lord Jesus Christ more intimately. But concerning the one who lacks such things, he's blind. That is, he's nearsighted, since he has forgotten about the cleansing of his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election, for by doing this you will never stumble into sin. For thus an entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. All right, so let's look at this. Let's unpack this text because it is uh, key here. The first part, again, is the basis for the prayer of verse 2. And the first, I was, you see there the bullet point under verse 3. Uh, by the way, that's how I felt this morning. The only difference is I have something that sits in the front of me. But anyway, uh, it's called my belly. But the power of God is given to believers, I wrote, a power that is sufficient and all-encompassing. How can he pray that grace and peace be lavished on you? Because he knows the power of God. We know the power of God. And the power of here, of course, is relation to, related to our salvation. I quote Schreiner in his commentary on 1 Peter there in your notes. When Christ calls people to himself... They perceive the beauty and loveliness of his moral character. In other words, his character becomes exceedingly attractive to them, and they trust God for their salvation. Believers will be morally transformed, but the foundation for that transformation is the grace of God. That's the key here, right? That's why he says here, uh, again, look at verse 3, that is through its divine power that has been given to us, and it's... It's, it's all sufficient, isn't it? It's, it's, it's everything you need for life. And I don't think that's just eternal life. I think he's talking about how to live here and now, the resources that you need. And it, again, it's accomplished through, how are those resources accomplished? Is knowing God. Knowing the one, he says, who called you. Uh, and out of his glory, out of his grace. Questions on this? This is huge. Right? He, he says, how can I pray grace and peace? Because number one, I know the power of God. I know what it's done in your life, and I know what it's doing in your life. And I know what it can do. Uh, think about Peter. He saw it firsthand. Uh, later in this epistle, he's going to say, I saw the glory of God and His power at the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw Christ in all His glory. So I know what resources we can tap into as we uh, attempt to live for him. But also, he highlights, not only is the power of God, there's also the promises of God, right? This is there seen in verse 4. He's 
bestow, not only has he given his power to us, he's also given his precious and most magnificent promises. I think Mu is right. What are these promises? I think they're the promises of the, the Old Testament. That, that God's going to woo you, you're, you're his. Uh, these, the mystery that's been revealed now in the New Testament era. Uh, Herbert Lockyer wrote numerous books, all of the people of the Bible. He wrote a book on all the promises of the Bible. He, he indicated in his work there are 7,487 promises in Scripture. Now... <clears throat> That may be true, uh, but there are certainly a ton of promises we can cling to, isn't there? Like what? What are some of the promises of God that we have? What do we have in the New Testament? I'm sorry? He promises to love us. Never leave us, forsake us. Promised you a home, right? John 14, 1. He, he, he promises to be the good shepherd that walks through the valleys. He, he, he's, he's promised he will keep us in the palm of his hand. And on it goes, right? And, and Peter's looking at this and he goes, how can I pray these things? Because I'm only what I'm doing is just claiming the promises of God for you. This is what we know. The, the great preacher of the mid-1900s was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He pastored in London. Some of you know him. He pastored through World War II and all the travesties. At the end of the 40s, right after World War II, he wrote a comment. Well, he preached a series that was then put into book form, and it was on this book, Second Peter. Interesting, isn't it? He said, I can't think of a more timely book than where we are as a country. But he makes this statement and he's spot on. The Christian gospel in the first instance doesn't ask us to do anything. Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. If that's how you view it, you're dead wrong. The only reason I do what I do is because I love the Lord. It's a relationship. And, and that's what Lloyd-Jones is highlighting. It first of all proclaims and announces to us what God has done for us. That's all that Peter's doing. He starts off by saying, before we talk about the virtues of living the Christian life, we got to remember two things, the power of God and the promises of God. They are vital. Don't forget, it's the same thing Christ says to the church at Ephesus in, in Revelation, right? Notice I didn't say revelations. Revelation, <clears throat> it's singular. He, he says to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. And what are they supposed to do? First, do what? Remember where Christ has brought them. That's this. Remembering, and, and that's what Peter's saying to his audience. Listen, don't forget what God has done for you and what he is doing for you and will do for you. The power, the promises of God are vital. Theology starts with God. It does not start with man. That's philosophy. And that's why it's hollow and deceitful, according to Paul and Colossians, I would argue. Uh, he makes an interesting statement here in these promises. Did you catch this? He says in verse 4, <clears throat> By means of what was promised, you have become what? Partakers of the divine nature. That's a doo -doo 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 phrase. That's weird, right? What does he mean by that? Uh, it, 
it had far more meaning in a Hellenistic culture than it does today. Uh, he is not saying that we become like gods, all right? And that's Jehovah Witnesses and uh, so forth. That is not what we're saying here. In fact, I mentioned this at the bottom of page one. The phrase indicates a moral transformation. In other words, we are participating in the things of the Lord. Yes, we're becoming more like Christ, <clears throat> but we are not becoming God-like. We're not becoming divine. And so, uh, and, and I mentioned the immediate context is clear. Growing spiritually allows us to escape the corruption that's in the world. Did you catch that, the last part? After escaping the worldly corruption... If it's not enough that the Lord has given us promises and power, He's also keeping us from all the crud of the world, which is really something. My wife is a licensed mental health counselor, and she came home Tuesday night. She, she had had 11 clients in one I couldn't, I don't know how you keep straight 11 clients in one day. Uh, she said at one point on Tuesday, and my wife is very good at compartmentalizing, but she said, about in the afternoon, I just wanted to close my door and weep. She said, this world is full of crud, and it just hurts. And we have the privilege of escaping that. That's the problem with the false teachers that we're going to see, is they want you to wallow in the mud of the world... <laughs> And all the problems there, but then you also are going to face, as Peter's going to highlight in this epistle, you're going to face the judgment. And the glorious thing is, because of God's power and because of his promises, that ain't going to happen to those who claim the name of Christ. Isn't that glorious? No wonder he can state in chapter 1, which we are in, in, in verse uh, 1, we have been granted a faith just as precious, you know? We have a precious faith, <laughs> and that's a word he's going to pepper throughout this epistle. Is This is glorious. It's rich. It's, it's marvelous, and we have this. This is ours. And so, after he's established what I think Lloyd-Jones is highlighting as well so, so eloquently, he then moves to the to-do-doing list. And, and by the way, that's true even in evangelism. I think that's true in, in working with others that we disciple. Um, you know, you don't expect a new convert to act like a frozen chosen of 20 years in the faith, right? So I remember Howard Henrich saying, it's okay to hear a few dams and hells every now and then. Um, give them time. You know, we're working with them. There's, there's a progress in the Christian life. Uh, <clears throat> but the to-dos do come. I'm not saying that, and certainly Peter is going to highlight that here as he moves to verse 5. But the, the first thing is that we focus on, on who we are in Christ. Then he moves to verse 5. For this very reason, he says, and we, we saw this, he, gives, he, he says, make every effort, be zealous about this. Uh, the term is loaded. Paul talks about he's zealous for the cause of Christ. That is not a real great term to use in the first century. It's kind of like saying you're a fundamentalist today. Because there's a group called the Zealots that were your uh, suicide bombers of the first century, literally, right? Um, so to use the word zeal, it's seldom used in Scripture and in, especially in Jewish writings in the first century or intertestament period. 
because that group was looked at as a, a, you know, a bunch of hotheads. But he says, you need to be zealous in adding to your faith. And he gives us this laundry list um, of eight virtues. Now, I used to think that this was all stair step. You do the one, then you go to the next. And if you get that one accomplished, it leads to the next one. That's not what's going on here. And that's not true with Paul either. So be careful. Um, We know that because of the typical literary device that's being used, all of these are important. Not one precedes the other. However, there is emphasis on the last virtue, or usually the first or the last. And in this case, we know it's the last. What is the last virtue mentioned? Love, right? Love. um, uh, Yeah, careful. I heard uh, it's agape love. Um, Yes, and I think sometimes theologians make too much of the different words for love here. But let's look at these. Eight virtues. The first of these is faith. He's, not, he's talking more about faithfulness or, or reliability. i give you a text for that. <clears throat> Virtue or excellence is the next one that is mentioned. Um, I, I stated in your notes, the term literally means a person with merit within a social context. Um, I know your reputation can be attacked, but if they did an investigation, they're not going to find anything. All right? Uh, you're clean. Uh, knowledge, again, that's been highlighted several times. Self-control, we know what that means. Perseverance or endurance. He's not talking about withstanding persecution here. He's talking about remaining pure in a world that's very tainted. That, that's, I think, the idea that the, the term is being used. Um, one early church father said that endurance is the queen of virtues. <laughs> Um, and that very well may be true. Godliness, uh, that goes without saying, a right attitude. And then he gives two loves here. The first is a brotherly love, and this is the fellowship among the saints. And then he talks about an unselfish love, which I think is much broader. It's, it's to humanity, <clears throat> not just to believers. And certainly it functions as the crown jewel in the list. Just as love does, I would argue, in Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. But again, it's eight virtues, eight areas that he's saying, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's the areas that you need to be looking at, you need to be addressing. Uh, A laundry list of virtues is not foreign to the New Testament. Paul peppers them through a couple times in his writings, so we see them. Um, But he he gives us this laundry list. Now couple caveats, and I've mentioned this in your notes. Um, This isn't a question of whether they exist or not. If you are a follower of Jesus, all of these will be present, some greater than others. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit isn't yours, it's the Spirit's (laughs) working in and through you. And so, as I mentioned in verse 8, when he says, for if these things really are yours... I think he's arguing, if you're truly a believer, they're yours. And, and, and we'll see this, the, the issue of increase. As I mentioned there in your notes, it's not an issue. Again, it's an issue of whether or not we are growing in these areas. Uh, thank goodness for divine power, right? 
because uh, I can tell you right now from this laundry list and even preparing this lesson, it's like, ouch. Uh, there's a couple areas that I'm really weak in, <laughs> maybe more than a couple. Uh, these are areas I need to address. I mentioned there under verse 8 in your notes, if we're growing in these areas, then our intimacy with Christ will increase. Did you see what he wrote in verse 8, Peter says? Look at this. For these things are really yours and are, if they're continually increasing, they will keep you becoming ineffective, idle, but also they will help you in growing intimate with our Lord. They go hand in hand. You want to know Christ? You want to know the Lord? Then you better work in these areas. Because if, if these aren't growing, your intimacy with God is not growing. They, they have to connect. There's one other statement I mentioned in your notes. Moral neutrality does not exist, I would argue, in the New Testament. I'm not saying there isn't room for carnality, so hear me out. But if you truly profess Christ, you will be growing in these areas. Amen. <laughs> and let me give you an example. So, and I'm going to use it's red letters because it's Christ's words. <laughs> Can't get any better, right? The parable of the sower, right? There's only one seed that's a follower of Jesus, ultimately. It's the one producing fruit. Yeah, well, some of them sprout up. They look great. But at the end of the day, they're not followers of the Lord. And we're going to, excuse me, that's what we're going to get to here. Uh, Peter's going to highlight this here in a minute. But I would argue there's no moral neutrality. Either you are, maybe you're struggling. There's no, there's, I'm not ruling that out, okay? We all have areas, but we need to be progressing. Um, I saw a hand. Yeah, rock. Okay. Does, it, does, it come, does it come upon you at a, at a later stage? I, the question was asked, does this come with maturity of age? And I would argue no. I, I've had a lot of 18 to 22-year-olds. In fact, I've taught nearly 6,000 of them. And uh, I would argue, no, I had some students who were unbelievably godly and wise. So... I'm just so some of us are slower than others. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, spiritual maturity, I would argue, is not dependent on age. I think age helps. Life experience helps. Uh, a wife can help. <laughs> um, kids can help, right? I mean, there's things about my life that I didn't realize until I started coaching. Uh, helping Tom Abernathy on the court with my son. I'm like, oh, I'm that impatient, am I? Um, yeah, so life situations and so forth is going to hone and shape that. But I, I don't think I've met 70 year olds who've been saved forever and they're about as immature as you can get. There, there has to be growth, though. And, and for each person, that's going to vary. But I would argue these are things that are all present if you're a follower of Jesus. Um, that may be troubling to some of you as we, we walk through this. But look what he says in verse 9, because I think this, the support for this is seen in the next three verses. 
But concerning the one who lacks such things, he is blind. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall do what? See God. A poor in spirit understands the dependency on the Lord. Humility, walking in those virtues. That is not the case with the one. By the way, the blindness here and nearsightedness, it may seem a little strange. I think the nearsightedness is, is identifying the blindness. Some scholars want to argue that the term is it's a willful blindness. It's closing the eyes. And there's some who argue this is some type of eye disease. Regardless, they're not seeing, right? And the kicker is in the last clause of this verse, since he has forgotten about the cleansing of his past sins. No wonder Christ says to the church at Ephesus, you know, you don't have that love and feeling you had when you first trusted Christ. You have forgotten where Christ has brought you. It's amazing to me. I, I, I look at this. We'll get to this in a second. How, how does someone forget where, what Christ has done for them? Yeah. You know, that is the definition of ungodliness. And uh, I'm in a study called Respectable Sins. And uh, we don't thank God daily for our salvation. We don't thank Him for our health. We don't think to, to uh, give Him the appreciation and honor and glory that He deserves daily and hourly. So laziness. <laughs> uh, what else? How does someone forget where the Lord has brought him? Pride, hands down. I'm going to argue sin. Was yeah, greed, complacency, isolation. Ooh, forgiveness. These are great. Yeah, take note, right? Take note. No wonder Peter spends the first section here rehearsing what we have, the power of God and the promises of God. Do you not think the audience knows that? Of course they know it. But he's reiterating, let's don't forget this. Because I'm going to address the false teachers. Wait till get to chapter 2. Paul pulls out a 2 by 4 and it's thicker than a 2 by 4 All right? And he's going to whack upside the head of the false teachers but he's shoring up his people first as he's writing. Don't forget these things. Don't lose sight of them. Then he moves to verses 10 and 11. And if questions didn't pop in your mind when we were reading this, it should. It creates a little uh, anxiety for the strong Calvinist. <laughs> Verse 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling, by doing this, you'll never stumble into sin. There are two questions that immediately should pop out of the text. The first of these is, is our salvation dependent on our actions? That's what it sounds like. There's a movement in evangelicalism called the New Perspective on Paul, and they argue that your justification is also dependent on your works, which sounds a lot like Vatican II, Roman Catholic teaching. Uh, that's what they would argue. You're not justified until the end when you reach heaven. It contradicts 2 Corinthians 5. It contradicts a ton of texts that you've been justified by God when you became a believer. Christ's righteousness was added to our account. It's vital 
right? So the question here as we look at this is, well, then what do you do with this? <clears throat> well, there's a key, it's two issues. One, it's a lexical issue. Because he says in verse 10, make every effort to be sure. That is a legal term. And as I mentioned there in your notes down at the bottom, going to the next page, it means that you have ratified or confirmed your faith. But as I mentioned at the top, the guarantee stems not from the recipient, but the one who gives the promise. There, is a t- there are tensions in Scripture, <laughs> right? And one of those is divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And this is one of those texts where I argue we have a little bit of, it's called I, uncomfortable tension, but it's there. As I mentioned in your notes, while those whom God has chosen will always, because of the Holy Spirit, respond to God and confirm their calling, they are to live according to their calling. In other words, I would argue, this is James, faith without works is dead. If you're truly a follower of the Lord, the works will follow. And, and I, it's not what will be, it's what is already true is what I'm arguing here in this passage. And so what Peter is stating is, hey, you, you, you've claimed that you're a follower of the Lord, and we know if He indeed has chosen you, then you will also choose Him and how you live. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And I'm preaching to the choir. You're here to study the Word. Many of you are involved in ministry. You're doing that. Keep it up. But it's a call to all of us, isn't it? Uh, that we need to make every effort to be sure. If we've claimed Christ, sin should be so foreign to us. That's why in, in 1 John 3, he says a believer doesn't sin. Now, the NIV likes to punt, and they have doesn't keep on sinning. They take it as habitual. Uh-uh. That's not John. John loves he's everything in black and white. A believer doesn't sin. Now, does he say you, you could sin? And that goes to the next question. Yes, because he says in 1 John 1, if we sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. But what's he saying? Sin is like oil and water to the believer. And that's what Peter's stating here. It should not, we should be so troubled when we're sinning. I've had those kids in my office who say, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really saved. And you start probing and it's because they're struggling in an area of sin. And to me, that's the greatest confirmation there is because the Holy Spirit is making them very uncomfortable. If they're not uncomfortable, then we got an issue. Well, let me give you the last question uh, as we move here. Um, So the first question I think doesn't, uh, he's not arguing this. The second question is, can we argue that we reach a sinless state? Because he he says, if we never stumble into sin. Again, I think the context is most important. And as I mentioned there in your notes, we're dealing with the stumbling into sin is the eternal ruin that we find with the false teachers. Again, that's what he's trying to shore up because the false teachers are giving a different message. And that's why in verse 11, he says the entrance into the eternal kingdom. There's a great big welcome sign. Notice what he says. You will be richly provided. It is undeserved. The false teachers are going to argue as we're going to see there there is no future, at least they poo-poo the eschaton, the end and judgment, etc. And Peter's writing says, no, 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 no. We have a glorious thing that awaits us as we remain faithful.
Well, the intersect, let me just walk through just briefly. I, I just give you three things. Number one, we need to make sure that we're indeed followers of Christ. I don't want to make that assumption in this room, but uh, has there been a point where you've trusted Christ as your Savior? If you haven't done that, see me, see one of the guys in this room. We'd be happy to just share. But secondly, spiritual growth is not an option. Uh, you can't... <laughs> I remember Charles Ryrie. He was in his 80s, and I asked, are you... Are you taking a little easier now because his health was deteriorating? He said, there's no retirement in the Lord's work. So uh, golf is okay, but if it's hindering you from serving the Lord because that's what you're doing all day long, take inventory. We need to be serving the Lord. Uh, we need to be busy. We must use all means at our disposal to cultivate the Spirit's work in our lives. And so, what's the challenge? The challenge is this. Take that laundry list of eight. And I, the question I have is, which of these virtues demands attention? Which area this week, you're going to say, you know what? This one just comes screaming at me. It's saying, Hoffman, you lack in this area. Um, and then, what specific steps can you take? Maybe it's committing a verse to Scripture. Maybe it's telling one of the guys at the table, you know what? This week, I'm really going to work on self-control. My tongue is just out of, out of whack. <laughs> or, or whatever the issue may be. And say, would you pray for me? Follow up with me. Uh, and commit to praying each morning, Lord, I want to know you more. And what that means then is these virtues have got to be, I mean, they got to be on fire. Right? I got to be moving. Uh, Packer, uh, I've got a quote at the bottom of the page. There is a, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve Him, boldness to share Him, and contentment in Him. Isn't that a great quote? Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the privilege of knowing You. There's so many religions where their God is some cosmic being that, that's, that uh, is unapproachable. And if he is approachable, you've got to move through some type of priest or, or mantra to get to him, not you. <laughs> because of Christ, we can come right to your throne room and you're interceding on our behalf. Father, help us to live for you. Help us to fan these eight virtues in our life because we want to know you better. Be with these men. Guide them this week. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.